Thank you, Paul. Uh, good morning, everybody. That was very nice. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, it is so good to be here with you this morning. It's been, uh, it's been a few years since I've been here, so it's lovely to see some faces that I recognize and lots of faces that are either I don't remember or are new to me, uh, but it's great. So yeah, uh, I'm Steve. I'm the director at the camp, uh, so I'm your friendly neighborhood camp director. Camp's about 30 minutes from here. It's on Gull Lake, if you don't know. Uh, I've been there for 16 years. And Paul, you're very gracious to say that, uh, you know, I have been responsible. I, no, I have just been joyously and humbly along for the ride as we have, um, yeah, rebuilt the buildings. So the camp was founded in 1920. Like, that's 103 years ago. Uh, that's a long time ago. And we've had to replace the building several times throughout those 100 years. And I just happened to be the place where all the buildings were, you know, that were built in the 60s, uh, their lifespan kind of finished. And then I get to be here to be the one that, you know, knock down all the sacred spaces at camp, like our chapel. Uh, that was my job. The director before me was like, no, no, it'll last, it'll last, last. It wasn't going to last. So it, it fell on me to... to uh, to rebuild our chapel and a couple other buildings as well. Um, and this has been a huge collective effort to keep the camp going for 100 plus years. And you as individuals and, and you as a congregation have been a big part of that. So I want to thank you very much for keeping camp going. Uh, it is not uh, a guarantee or a certainty that camp just happens. It takes a lot of people and a lot of work. Uh, donors and volunteers and campers and young leaders and future leaders uh, to come and be part of camp and make it happen summer after summer, 103 times in a row. Uh, this past summer, we served a little over 1,000 campers, which is great. It's a bit of a bounce back year for us still. Uh, this year, we expect to be right around capacity uh, at just under 1,200 campers, which will be just amazing. Um, our mission is creating space for campers to connect with Christ. And that's what we do. We don't get to connect uh, campers to Christ ourselves, right? We don't get to force those connections. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. That's free will. That's how that works. But what we get to do is create a space that hopefully is this thin space, right? Where we, we turn down the noise. And not like the actual noise, because camp is noisy. Like camp is very noisy, delightfully noisy, right? We got 150 kids and 90 leaders. We got 240 people there. It's noisy. But the cultural noise, the distractive noise, that's what we try and turn down. When you're at camp for a week, you're focused on what's actually in front of you. Uh, one of the gifts that we have at camp is there's no phones allowed, no screens, uh, which is just amazing and very unusual, like for kids. Uh, so I have four kids. My oldest is 16, and she's one of our junior leaders. Uh, we call them LTDs. And the past two summers, she's been at camp for six weeks, six weeks each summer. So imagine a 16-year-old voluntarily going six weeks without a cell phone. That's incredible. Uh, and as a parent, it was like, oh, I got my kid back, right? Especially over these last few years where everything was done on screens. And then for my kid to go to camp for six weeks, only interacting with the people actually in front of her. And having six weeks without all this distraction, without all this noise, just focus on her relationship with Christ, unbelievable. I had a new kid uh, after these. And, <laughs> yeah, like, 
And I'm the camp director, so I'm like supposed to say all these great things, but as a parent, to see it from that side uh, was, was just a gift. So I come with very humble thanks. Thank you uh, as individuals and as a congregation for supporting the camp. I'm so thankful that this place exists. Uh, I get to see the ministry uh, play out each hour of the summer, and it's phenomenal. But as a parent, I get to see the ministry play out uh, each hour of the year as my kids and my, my kids, my, my second child will now be an LTD this summer. Uh, and I get to see the blessing, and it's just phenomenal. Um, so if you have kids or grandkids, or nieces, or nephews, or neighbors who have kids, or you have seen a kid before in your life, uh, camp might be a great place for them to spend a week this summer. Now, check with them first, and if they're not your kid, check with their parents first, because I don't need that kind of noise uh, coming my direction this summer, but camp's pretty awesome. Um, we are... We're getting full. We're, we're at over 700 kids uh, registered right now, and some of our weeks are full or are almost full, but there are still spaces for, I think, every age group, uh, depending on the week. So uh, we're still there. Something's important to camp is that this isn't the important part. There's a factor in it, though. Camp is expensive. Like, it's really expensive. Uh, it costs us about $1,000 for each kid to come to camp. Our insurance, uh, we don't know what our insurance is going to be this year, but last year our insurance alone was $60,000. Our utility bills are like $90,000 a year. That's just, that's just the boring stuff, right? We haven't done anything fun yet with that. Uh, so camp's expensive, but we subsidize. We subsidize through donations, and we subsidize through our rentals. So what we charge is under 500 bucks uh, per kid to come to camp. But, as I said, I have four kids. 500 bucks is still really expensive. Um, so we also have camperships available as well to further subsidize. We never, ever, ever, ever want money to keep a kid from coming to camp. We think that's a terrible reason. So if you have a kid or you know a kid or somebody near you has a kid uh, and they would like to come to camp for a week, um, talk to us. We'd love to make it work. Um, I have a video if we can play that, this will give you a bit of a bit of a show of what camp looks like. It's short. It's like 90 seconds. So that's a bit of a, a taste of what we do. Uh, as Pastor Paul said, I grew up uh, going to church at Red Deer. So I, I was part of Red Deer First Baptist for a long time. That's where I, 
Uh, I grew up, got baptized, got married, had my first sermon. Um, my wife was on staff there for a bit. Um, and it was absolutely foundational in, in who I am as a follower of Christ. And I was a very nervous kid. I was a shy kid, total homebody, um, just like kind of doing my own thing. And my best friend finally convinced me to go to camp when I was 15. And I went to Go Lake. And that's when I had a life-changing encounter with Jesus. Um, and God spoke to me in a way that I still remember today. And it shaped who I am. And that's the role of camp. Uh, we want to take uh, kids and youth that have that church foundation, uh, that come and, and are part of church and part of Sunday school and part of youth, and we offer that mountaintop experience. That's what camp is. And I have a friend who has a great kind of understanding of the analogy of the mountaintop, which is mountaintops are great, right? You get to go up, you get to see around, and it's really exciting, and it's memorable. It's like, whoa! And it feels, it's not, but it feels like you're close to God. But there's no food on a mountaintop, right? There's no water on a mountaintop. It's bare. It's rock. So you need to go back down. That's where the nourishment is. That's where it is. And I feel like that's camp. Kids get to come to camp for a week, and they get to look around. They're like, whoa, God is amazing. It's like, oh, this is so great. And there's people my age. We're having fun, and we're staying up late, and we're talking, and we're talking around the campfire, and we're talking, you know, bunk to bunk in the cabins, and we're sharing stories, and God is speaking. It's amazing. And then we get to come back to church. And that's where the growth and reality happens. It's like camp is like the spark, right? And that's our role. So that's what we do. Uh, thank you for supporting. Thank you for caring. Thanks for sending kids and leaders uh, for 100 years. It's pretty incredible. Um, one of the things that we do best at camp isn't actually our camp program. It's actually our leadership program. That's, that's what we really do. A camper comes for a week, and it's great. But a leader comes for three weeks or six weeks or ten weeks, and that's... It's life-changing often. Um, and, uh, you know, so a big thing that we focus on is our leadership. And today I want to talk about leadership. Um, and I want to tell a story uh, from Jesus' Last Supper. But today is actually Palm Sunday. So I just want to intro a little bit with that. Palm Sunday is an incredible time because of the, the dichotomy of expectation, Right? Jesus comes in, and he knows what to expect. He's going to die. It's going to hurt. It's going to be rough. But he knows what comes after that. The people think they're getting a new king. They're getting freedom, right? Hosanna. This is amazing. This is a party. And they're celebrating. And they're stoked. And then these expectations cross, right? And they clash. And then in Jesus' moment of triumph, that feels like the moment of despair, right? As Jesus conquers death, they think, oh no, he's dead. And that's just an incredible uh, image that I always try to pause and remember on Palm Sunday is, what's my expectation of Christ this morning? Am I expecting him just to come in, the conquering hero, and there's going to be no trouble, he's just going to overthrow, and that's going to be that? Or do I have to trust that there's something beyond what I can see? 
And that's a bit what I want to share uh, with this story today. So today I'm going to talk about leadership, and I'm going to talk about cultivating a, a, a culture, an intentional culture, because this is something we do really uh, carefully at camps. So we cultivate culture, we, we train leaders, and it's something I see God doing throughout the Bible, and I see Jesus doing very specifically in the Gospels, right? He's cultivating a culture here. Um, so I want to talk about that, and I want to use a story about Jesus as an example of this. So leaders set the culture. That's a, so I did my Master's of Arts in Leadership a few years ago, and that was a big thing that I was really focusing on. Leaders are the culture, and you do it through a lot of different ways, a lot of different tools that you can use and, and different things, but leaders set the culture. And Jesus is an incredible leader, probably the best leader of all time. Uh, but I want to be really careful here because I don't want to minimize Jesus by simply calling him a leader. He is a leader. He's the leader, right? But he's not just a leader. And I don't want us to think like, wow, Jesus is amazing. He's such a great leader. Yes, he is. But he's so much more. So let's talk about Jesus as the Son of God, as the Messiah, as all that he is, right? Not just as a leader. But it's also about the kingdom of God and what the kingdom of God is like and how Jesus is shaping uh, humanity to help uh, be part of the kingdom of God. So it's not a leadership talk. It's actually a kingdom talk. Uh, and I want to look at the story. That's an incredible example of cre uh, culture creation. And it's a piece of the Last Supper, and it's found in John 13. So I'm going to read from John 13. Uh, so if you'd like to flip it open or go on your phone or whatever you do here, uh, that's great. But it's going to be John 13. And I always hate when speakers are like, here's the Bible passage, and they're like right into it. You're like, I don't know where that is. Uh, so it's John 13, John 13, starting at verse 1, if you're so inclined to follow. But now you're probably like, oh, you said it like nine times. Oh, Fine, I'll get my Bible out, I'll read along. But you probably missed it. No, it's fine. Okay, John 13. But before I begin, I'm going to read it. And I invite you to imagine that you're there. That you're in the room. In the room where the Last Supper is happening. But you're just a fly on the wall. You're not participating. You're just observing. Can you notice how the people are spread out? What's the room like? What's the setup? How big is it? What's the smell? What's the mood in the room? Is it upbeat? Is it low-key? Who's there? Who's in the room? Who isn't there? Who sits beside who? What's the temperature? Both the actual physical temperature, is it hot, is it cold, is it perfect? What's the emotional temperature? What's the most interesting decoration in the room? I invite you to put yourself in the room as you listen to this story. John 13. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter and said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never 
wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. This is an amazing story, an amazing story. And I think that we sometimes get desensitized to the popular Bible stories, and that's too bad. Uh, I remember picking up my, my oldest daughter, who was maybe three years old at the time, uh, from Children's Church, and she came out, and it was probably about this time of year, and she had a coloring sheet on it that she'd just, you know, been scribbling on, and the coloring sheet was of Jesus on the cross. And I thought, oh, no. You just took the power out of that story. Because now, when she's 12 or 13, and when she hears that story, it's going to be trite, right? It's going to be another coloring sheet. Like, yeah, yeah, I know. Jesus died for my sins. I get it. No, you don't get it. You don't get it. Jesus dying for your sins is a radical thought. It's a radical thought. God dying for us, that is a radical thought. And more than the thought, that's a radical action. It's not a coloring sheet. It's radical. Now, this story about Jesus washing the disciples' feet is not as radical as Jesus dying for our sins. But it is a powerful story nonetheless. This is a powerful teaching moment and a powerful cultural creation moment. Now, you may have, you probably have, heard this story before. And you might feel that you already know it. But I want you to try and see it anew this morning. So, a couple of things, right? First off, know that washing people's feet wasn't special, right? This isn't an unusual act. This is a normal part of the day. People walked everywhere, and it was dirty, and it's sandy, and there's donkey droppings everywhere, and they're in bare feet, or they're in sandals. Uh, so washing your guest's feet was a very normal part of hospitality. But here's where the powerful part comes in. It was the servant's job to wash the feet, right? There is no honor in this. There is no respect or dignity. Whoever had the lowest ranking washed the feet because feet are gross. And I mean, feet are gross today, right? Like, my feet are gross. My kids make fun of my feet all the time because I have like a black toenail from skiing or running or whatever, right? Like, my feet are gross. Now, imagine feet 2,000 years ago before antibiotics, before antifungals, before running water, before waste disposal. Actually, I was Googling how gross feet can be, and I found some amazing pictures, which I have brought this morning. So I'm going to show you just 
No, I'm kidding. I wouldn't do that to you. That'd be terrible. Maybe if it was yesterday, April Fool's Day, I might do it, but not today. But you get it, right? Feet are gross. And washing the feet was for the servant. And not your favorite servant, the other one, the one you didn't like. So imagine this scene, right? They all arrive at the place where they're having supper. And this is just a borrowed guest room in someone else's house. And there was no one there to wash their feet. So they sit down, and the meal proceedings start to begin. I wonder, and this is just a wonder, I wonder if anyone said anything out loud. Like, did one of the disciples say, ah, I guess we forgot to bring a servant to wash our feet, hey? Or, oh, I guess we don't get a wash tonight. Or did they say nothing? Like, does this just happen sometimes? I don't know. I don't know what happened exactly. But I do know what should have happened. One of the disciples should have washed their master's feet, right? Jesus is the rabbi. He's their master. In this relationship, they are the servants. But nobody gets up to do it. Now, I don't think that any of them would have had a problem washing Jesus' feet. He was obviously above them. But I wonder if they didn't want to wash the other disciples' feet. I wonder if they thought they were above that. I wonder if they didn't want to take the role of the servant amongst the group, right? Because once you do something once, that becomes your role forever. So, I wonder if there's this awkward moment, right, where everyone's just looking around, wondering, who's going to wash their feet? Or I wonder if they all just resign themselves to the fact that no one's going to wash their feet, and it's no big deal, and that's fine. It's disappointing for sure, but it's not the end of the world. But either way, we do know that none of the disciples got up to do it. They're all just sitting there. So then Jesus, the teacher, the rabbi, the guest of honor, the master, not to mention the Son of God, God himself, the Savior of the world, the Messiah, like Jesus gets up, takes off his robe, puts on an apron, and begins washing their feet. Their dirty, their tired feet. He takes on the role of the servant. What incredible humility. Because this is Jesus. Jesus. And Jesus, by humbling himself to the role of a servant, is making a very very loud statement to his disciples. He's saying, you're not special. You are unique. You do have gifts given to you that make you different. You matter for sure, but you're not special. You're not above anyone else. You do not get special treatment. Your job is to serve, just like my job is to serve. Jesus says, you are not equal by this action. He doesn't say it aloud. He says by his action, you are not equal to me. I'm your master and I'm serving you. Now go and follow my example. Serve one another. That's a powerful statement. Now, I've seen this acted out in ways that are, as the youth would say, 
cringy. I have seen church leaders completely miss the mark on this by bringing people up on stage so that they could make a public display of washing their feet in front of everyone so the crowd could see just how much they were like Jesus. Like, imagine if we're like, Paul, Paul, come up here. I've got something for you. And I'm, I'm going to wash Paul's feet right here, right now. Right? Or if I was like, hey, I need a future LTDs. Come on up. Come, I'm going to wash your feet right now. Right now. Come on up. That's not the same as what Jesus was doing. If I did that, that's an image of me trying to become more powerful. Right? Me saying, look at me. Look how humble I am. See how much I am like Jesus. No. Paul's feet are clean. Right? They don't need washing. And people being dragged up on stage don't want their feet washed. Now, I've also seen this done in a beautiful and lovely and symbolic demonstration of humility and respect, right? I've seen at a wedding where the couple washed each other's feet as a promise to serve and honor each other. That's beautiful, and that's intimate, and that's private, and it's wonderful. But what I'm talking about is people in a position of power on stage trying to show off their fake humility in a way that just isn't right. And I bring this up because Jesus is teaching a critical message about the kingdom of God here. He's not actually talking about washing feet, right? That's the physical act that he's doing, but this is about so much more. He's talking about what it means to be a follower of him. If you were going to follow Jesus, you are going to take on the role of the servant. That's the point. That is the example he has set before us. Now, sadly, we see this example has not been followed countless times in the church, and we see it splashed along the headlines with regularity today. And I don't say this to throw rocks from within my glass house, but simply to notice the temptations that I have in my life and be reminded of the example that Jesus taught us. I am tempted all the time to think that I am special and that there is work that, you know, only I can do this, and I'm, I'm way too busy and important to do that task. And part of this is actually true, right? That's what makes it tempting. I do have talents and skills and responsibilities that are unique to me, and that I can't ignore them. That's my job. That's my role. But that does not exclude me from the role and the mindset of a servant, just as it did not exclude Jesus from that role. I was listening to a podcast uh, this past year. It's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, which was this, Mars Hill was this mega church based out of Seattle, and it was pastored by a guy named Mark Driscoll, and it's a fascinating part, podcast, and it looks at what happens when a church, when a Christian leader loses their servant heart, and it was, it's a difficult listen. Oh, it was hard. It was hard to kind of hear that, um, but it was an important reminder to me that we are called to serve. All of us are called to serve. And in this podcast, was this, there was a snippet, just a little piece, from a guy named Andy Crouch. And he was, talking about, he was talking about Princess Diana, and he was talking about Mother Teresa, and the comparisons that can be made between the two. One being that they were two of the most famous and recognized women of the 90s. And another, that they both did massive charity work. They both had huge influence. And of course, they both died at you know, the same time. Um, but they had utterly different paths to celebrity and influence. Andy Crouch points out that it's fascinating that almost everyone, almost everyone wants to be like Princess Diana, 
but no one can be like Diana, right? There's only one Diana. Only one person gets to marry the Prince of Wales. Only one person is that pretty, that charismatic, that well-positioned. And it's not you. Not even you. Sorry, Paul. It's not you. You're not a princess. You're not. You never will be. You're, you're just not. Apologies. Sorry to break your dreams. But you're not. None of us are. None of us are princesses. None of us can be Diana. And none of us can do what Diana did. You can't be her. But any of you can be like Mother Teresa. And this is the line that Andy Crouch said that hit me especially hard. He said, because all she is is a saint. And any of us can be saints if we open ourselves to Jesus. All she is is a saint. And any of us can be saints if we open ourselves to Jesus. And that hits me. Because the simplicity of it, the flippancy of it, right? Like anyone can be a saint. And the truth of it, the path to being a saint is simple. It only requires us to open ourselves to Jesus. Any of us can be a saint. Are we willing to open ourselves to Jesus? Uh, I have a friend. So, little story. I have a friend, it's a bit complicated, whose brother's ex-wife, right? So it's my friend's ex-sister-in-law. Um, it's actually a, it's a sad story. So my friend's ex-sister-in-law is having this devastating and declining physical and mental health, and she's having all these issues because of alcohol abuse. Uh, it's a bad situation, and this person has become incredibly difficult. She's become mean, she's confused, she's unable to care for herself, and she's now hospitalized. And she has been hospitalized for a while. And she's in total denial and is very upset that she's in this situation. But while she's in the hospital, she's getting evicted from her place. And whether she's in denial or not, she is still getting evicted, but she isn't doing anything about it. So my friend, after much verbal abuse from this person, got the keys to her place, moved all of her possessions into storage, and then cleaned the house to fulfill her sister's obligation to the landlord. She did this as an act of love and service to her ex-sister-in-law and also to the landlord who would have been stuck with it otherwise. That is not the work of a princess. That is the work of a saint. Jesus showed us how to do the work of a saint. Jesus set the example and the expectation that we will go and be saints in the world around us. Now, this is not meant to add burden and more work to your life. There's not another item on your to-do list like, oh, great, now I need to go and wash somebody's feet today. No. This is an invitation to remind you of the culture that you are being welcomed into by Christ a culture in which no one is better or above anyone else. A culture in which we all serve each other. A culture in which the Lord of all is willing to do the work of a servant. Will you participate in that culture? Will you cultivate that culture? Okay, one last thought. It's a short one, and then I'm done. If you can, I want you to imagine you're back in that room with the disciples and with Jesus for the Last Supper. Okay? You're in that room. The meal is about to be served, 
But this time, you are sitting there as one of them. You are in the group. It's been a long day, and you are excited for this special meal. What do you think Jesus would have done when he saw you? When he looks across the room, across the table, and he sees you sitting there with the others. He would have washed your feet. He would have got up, taken off his robe, put a towel around his waist, walked to you, knelt down before you, picked up your dirty, your tired, your unclean, your unwashed, your well-used feet. He would have held them in his hands, dipped them in the cleansing water, rubbed them with the cloth, and dried them with the towel that was wrapped around his waist. It was his last supper, and he would have loved you as his own to the end. What a moment. So today, in the midst of whatever journey you are on, whatever has made you tired and dirty and sore, imagine that as you sit down to have a meal, Jesus, Jesus, the Son of God, the Lord of all, the Messiah, takes off his robe, puts on an apron, kneels beside you, and washes your feet. Your feet. You. What an intimate act of care for you. And he does this because he loves you. He loves you so much, regardless of what state you're in. He loves you to the end. Are you able to receive his love? That's the question I leave with you today. Now, go and do the same for others, because that's our challenge. That's our call. As followers of the living Christ, that is who we are called to be. Uh, can I pray? Let me pray for us. Holy God, you are so good. You are so good. You are so good. God, I pray today as we sit in the midst of your presence that you tune and you turn our hearts and our minds towards you. May we fall deeply, deeply in love with you as you show us your love. And God, may we follow your example and be servants to those around us. We pray this in the holy name of Jesus, who was and is and is to come. Amen. Thank you very much for letting me be here today and for sharing. I got to talk about camp and Jesus, my two absolute favorite subjects to talk about, so thank you. If you'd like to talk to me about either of those things, I'll be out uh, in the lobby uh, and, and just love to answer any questions about camp, tell you about camp, uh, let you know all the details, answer any questions uh, that you might have. Thank you again for having me.